Comcast RISE, which stands for Representation, Investment, Strength, and Empowerment, is an initiative designed to help strengthen small businesses owned by people of color that have been hit the hardest by the economic impact of the pandemic. Comcast RISE aims to create sustainable impact and give meaningful support to the small businesses with free marketing services, media opportunities, and tech upgrades. Head to www.comcastrise.com to apply today. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Eni Lim. Eni is the CEO and co-founder of Honeybee, a certified benefit corporation with a mission to give free access to financial support in the workplace, providing no-cost rainy day funds and on-demand financial therapy for employees and their families, creating a healthier workforce environment. Honeybee is the result of Lim's journey through her personal finance challenges after her divorce. They provide support for issues that disproportionately affect these marginalized groups. Annie is passionate about diversity and inclusion initiatives and building businesses for a better tomorrow. Annie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Annie, we're excited to have you on the show today. We've actually been keeping an eye out on your successes for a while now. and like We're super excited to have you on. Before we get started, we want to hear more about your story because... I'm kind of wondering, are you a Canadian entrepreneur? I'm Canadian and American. So yeah. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> well, my parents immigrated to Montreal, Canada when I was five from Malaysia. And um, so that's uh, I'm I'm dual citizen today. <laughs> okay, that's that's awesome to hear. Yeah, I mean we're trying to have more not just American entrepreneurs, but more Canadian, Australian, international entrepreneurs. So we decided to have you on. So let's dive into your story. You know, like where'd you grow up? What was their upbringing like? And did your parents ever taught you a lot about entrepreneurship or even taught you like, hey, this is a path that you can pursue besides having a traditional career? Uh, yeah. So like I mentioned, my parents had immigrated uh, to Montreal in Quebec, a French speaking province uh, when I was five from Malaysia. Uh, they didn't speak English or French. So it's difficult for an undergrad to even find work if they don't speak French in Quebec. So I can only imagine all the obstacles they faced uh, when they first moved and completely unfamiliar with the environment, food, people, languages, weather. Very big difference than um, growing up in Asia. So my parents had always taught me to take risks. Most Asian parents, as you can imagine, will want you to become doctor or lawyer. Uh, But I guess at a very early age, they realized that wasn't going to (laughs) happen. So they encouraged me to take a lot of risk and they're entrepreneurs themselves. And, you know, they tried several um, uh, opportunities and projects and just didn't work out. But in addition to that, I think there's just a lot of unbelievable women that inspire me to wake up every day and keep fighting the good fight. So at a young, uh, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to meet, you know, feminist icons like Gloria Steinem. She was a leader in the women's movement in the early 60s and beyond. And women like her and RBG have really paved the path for women like myself. And I'm really grateful for that. And shout out to you. You're still paying the path for us. You know, that's the reason why we we caught our attention initially. We're like, wow, you're such a successful entrepreneur. Like, can't wait to have you in the show. 
They were trying to think of ways to like get your attention. Like, okay, what if I follow her on Instagram? What if I follow her on on LinkedIn? Will she respond to us? <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. That inspires me. And uh, I'm really glad you reached out. Yeah, so thank you, Emmy. Um, I want to know, like, how was it like growing up in Montreal? And how did that kind of like shape your Asian identity while you were growing up in Montreal? Um, so it was actually quite difficult. Uh, I moved into a new environment. So, you know, with everything that was going on in the last few years, uh, a lot of that, you know, negative narrative definitely impacted me. I grew up just uh, wanting to make sure that I didn't bring up, didn't cause any attention. So I would try to fit in as much as I could, um, as we're all familiar with today. Like I try to bring food that didn't, wouldn't, wouldn't cause any attention. Right. So I would watch what other kids would bring to school. And I just told my mom, I cannot bring rice or noodles. Like just give me the ham sandwiches on a white bread with nothing else. And, um, and so those were just like, I definitely struggled with my identity growing up, which is why, you know, most um, Canadian, French Canadians played uh, hockey. So I actually picked up hockey and joined the team surrounded by all white people. And I thought like the more I'm surrounded by them, the less they will notice me. And actually that worked for a very long time. So that's why it was really empowering to see all the movement that was happening um, during the Stop Asian Hate because for the first time, I felt like I was part of a community. And um, yeah, it was really difficult growing up. I definitely struggled with my identity. I think it was only most recently that I was most comfortable with it. Um, I mean, I mean, definitely everyone goes through their own journey separately. But with your story, it's like it's relatable to a lot of people in Asian Hustle Network. I think it's part of the reason why we picked up a lot of momentum too because Nowadays, a lot of Asians are finding a lot more pride on being Asian. You know, like a lot of us grew up in a way where it's like, it wasn't cool to be Asian. Like there's mm-hmm. so many negative stereotypes. Like you're only nerdy, you're not attractive, you're not yeah. blah, blah, blah. And we want to stay away from those. But as we got older, we're like, wait a minute, like, why are we being teased? Our culture is actually really cool. You know, yeah. and that's the part that is really relatable to ourselves, at least. For me and Maggie, the reason why we created Asian Hustle Hustle Network, and the reason why we we also wanted you in the podcast as well. All, I mean, so let's dive deep into like, so we talked about your your cultural upbringing. Like, let's dive deep into like, when did you move into like the states, and what was your career path like before you decided, hey, like I'm gonna make that jump. I must be a startup founder. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be this powerful CEO woman. Like, how how did that all come together for you? Uh, well, it happened about like 10 years ago. I had met my um, prior husband in Asia. So I worked in Asia first. I, I struggled a lot with my identity growing up in Montreal and I wanted to, you know, just jump right in. So I moved to Hong Kong for a few years to work there just to um, meet more Asian people, to be honest, and just understand my culture just a little bit better. And uh, while I was out there, I, I met my last husband and essentially like I moved to the Bay Area and moving to the Bay year was actually, it was, it was difficult for me because I didn't come from the tech industry. I had, uh, I dealt with a lot of rejections looking for work. Uh, I didn't have the right technical background, so it was extremely difficult. So I, Honeybee was not the first uh, business that I tried to start. I started a couple of other businesses where I try to crowdfund, um, 
um, have a crowdfunding campaign to raise money. And it was, you know, it was, it was definitely a nice attempt and I learned a lot from it as well. So I have to say, I didn't really say I wanted to jump right in and be an entrepreneur. I think it just happened. Uh, Honeybee was really the result of my very own financial setback. And so that's why I started what I started. And just a little background on like uh, Honeybee and some of the issues we solved is that, you know, economic inequalities already existed even long before the pandemic. So as we see today, you know, 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck and have less than $500 in savings. And what that really means is that it creates a domino effect of like domino negative effects of like unpaid bills, utilities shutting off, and not to mention all the mental stress that it comes with it. So really what happened was I had gone through a divorce and my credit was negatively impacted. And I found myself in a situation where I just couldn't get access to affordable credit. I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was really embarrassed to ask for help. So I started looking at loans that I could get approved for and stumbled upon the payday industry. What the payday industry does today is they take advantage of an extremely vulnerable population in the US. I think it's a $90 billion industry. And there's a reason it's extremely profitable is because they charge outrageous interest. And um, I was out in the Bay Area. I couldn't get approved for an apartment. And so I ended up moving everything into storage. And I moved back home to live in my parents' basement in Montreal. It was a very humbling experience, to say the least. But I reconnected uh, with an old friend of mine from Montreal. He's actually my co-founder today. And he came from fintech. But what was most interesting is that his family um, had restaurants and they had about 70 employees or so. And every time an employee was faced with an emergency, they would ask his dad for money. And you can imagine the friction it caused in terms of the employer and employee relationship. And collecting that money back is extremely awkward. And I felt it firsthand when my mom was a sole breadwinner for a household of five. She always relied on the loan that she would get from her boss as well. So we knew that there was a way we can solve this through the employer channel because we kept hearing about it and employers lending money and how nobody talked about it. So I wouldn't say I was uh, inspired. I was mostly, you know, I stumbled upon an issue that I was facing and couldn't, I couldn't I couldn't believe that this was a fundamental problem that was happening in the U.S. where, you know, the payday industry just took advantage of so many people. So I gave it a shot. And here we are today. You know, Honeybee is working with employers um, anywhere from mid-market to enterprise to really provide free access to financial health to their employees. And I think it's something that's a must have in the workplace. And so that's how we started. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, Annie. And I just wanted to thank you for being so transparent and honest with your story. And I think that it's just such an inspiration to all of us, right? I think especially in Asian culture, we don't like to ask for help. So we always just turn to ourselves and try to educate ourselves, but we really do have to educate ourselves by asking for help, asking for financial advice. And to be honest, you know, like just reading some of your articles, you know, you you t- you did talk a lot about how they don't even teach us about financial education in schools, which is like the biggest fundamental thing that we need to survive in our adulthood, right? And you're absolutely right. Like the marginalized groups are denied mortgages at a much higher rate. And, you know, as a person of color and as a woman too, you know, we get tested for financial knowledge all the time compared to, let's say like men are. So I really, really like, you know, find a lot of inspiration in your story. 
Oh, thank you for that. And I think like a lot of us, you know, I don't know about you, but my parents just taught me to save money. They'll buy branded things like just save, 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 don't spend. And so that was the only thing I was taught. And we're all expected to just figure it out after school. So I I do believe that financial literacy should be at the forefront of education and in the workplace. Same. Yes. I mean, my parents have always taught me to just save too, like wherever we could save, you know, like turn off the lights to conserve energy, don't turn on the heater, but they never teach us to, you know, invest or, you know, any like fundamental knowledge of like financial education. It's, I feel like in Asian households, it's very, very rare. Yeah. All we hear is like, don't waste money. (laughs) (laughs) I still hear that today. Yeah, I still hear that from my parents as well. Um, I mean, first of all, I want to acknowledge that it isn't easy to be in your position before to get out of that and sort of think about what you want to do next. I can't imagine how that feels, right? And I think, I think a lot of my our podcast people don't know that I actually failed a couple of business before too, where I'm just like, oh no, like my life is over. <laughs> um, but I think it was humbling about your story is that you're able to reinvent yourself relatively quickly and sort of think about the positive things, even though things were looking really bleak, you know, you moved home, you were reconnecting with people, you were thinking about probably the next venture, what are you going to do next? So I think that that gives us a lot of inspiration on the type of things that you're able to do in order to recover. So my question is being a second time founder, essentially, um, would you say that it's more important to focus on the product or more fo- more important to focus on the distribution? That's a question that I like to ask second time founders because that is a hot debate that I'm always thinking about. Like, what is the right answer? Because there is no right answer. I'm just curious what you think. Um, yeah, actually, that's a great question. It's also a trick question. Uh, but essentially, this time around, like that distribution is really important, like figuring out um, so when we first started Honeybee, we had this genius idea to collateralize loans against pay time off because a lot of that sits on the balance sheet today. So although it was really great in theory, um, once we started going out to market, talking to uh, employers, they didn't understand the concept. And so, yes, although it seemed like it was a great product at the time, but in terms of like selling and distribution, it became extremely difficult. So we had to shift it a little bit more to think about how are we going going to sell this so that it's easier for HR and employers to fully understand. So this time around, we focus a lot on distribution and how important that was. So it depends on the business you're building, but for us specifically, it was really important to uh, focus on distribution. That's, that's, that's the answer I get most with second time founders, like focus <laughs> on distribution, get the product out there, find the market market fit, but it's a yeah. hard debate, right? I think essentially yeah. it depends on what kind of product you're trying to build. Absolutely. And yeah. like, it could be a great product, but nobody wants it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? So absolutely. that would be actually difficult. Yeah. Uh, just to dive deep into like your first startup, we're kind of curious, like what kind of things made the startup fail and what kind of lessons you learned from that? And as we know, like as entrepreneurs, you always take every life experience that comes your way and incorporate yeah. it as you're making new decisions for your new company, good or bad. So for those who are listening right now, please take that risk because it always comes back in ways you'd never expect. Yeah. Trust me. And you never expect it to come in that, in that way where you're like, Oh wow, I'm glad I went through that. <laughs> you know, let's, let's talk through that real quick. Um, yeah. So if I'm, t- if I'm thinking about the first like, um, company or I guess product, I would say I built, I think a lot about Shark Tank and, you know, Mr. Wonderful is like, that's not a company, that's a product. And so that really, that's really what I was. Right. So my, my family was in manufacturing and I built like sustainable baby product that was, had no packaging. It was, uh, provided, 
uh, fair treatment and fair wages for people and women that worked in South America. So I thought about a lot of the story of the product, building the product, um, getting the best, um, you know, textile, organic and certified. I did all of that only to realize like maybe this isn't a product that people want because once I got into the store, there were other issues that I were facing, um, like display for the product and all of that. So that became extremely difficult. That's why I learned that first time around. And if I had to look back, I would build a very different uh, company last time around. But I crowdfunded. I learned a lot about resilience. Uh, building resilience is super important. And how to handle rejection. And so I learned a lot about that last time and this time around. So I handle rejection. You know, it's a work in progress, but I still I've improved a lot over the over the years. And so become a lot stronger and, you know, a lot thicker skin that I used to have. I love that. I love that. It's a, it's a rejection is a normal part of any entrepreneur game. Uh, mm-hmm. Not everyone sees your vision and that's OK. You know, only yeah. you can see your vision. <laughs> Uh, but all you really need at the end of the day is a couple of yeses to really get the momentum moving. So absolutely. Yeah. And just yeah. remember to put things into perspective, right? Sometimes a no can open the door for something else. And I think that's really important, whether it's just part of daily life, whether it's a job, a pitch or a date, you know, rejections are part of life. Absolutely. Yes. That's, that is 100% true. I think like as soon as a door closes on you, another door will open for you. And I think that we need, we all need to see failure as an opportunity. You know, I think this kind of led you into Honeybee as well. And um, which is like a good segue to talk about, you know, how your longtime friends, Benny and Max had approached you about this prototype idea that they had for uh, providing financial support through their employer channel. So I want to you know, know a lot more about, you know, what this process looked like and how they approached you. What did that first conversation kind of look like? And then, you know, where you guys went from there? What what were those like first couple of days and months like? Um, well, so I actually, I met both of them and Benny was, you know, I knew him from, um, you know, back in my college days. So I was just looking at, you know, what they were building in terms of, you know, what he was going through in his personal life was on his dad was lending money to employees. And so it was a very basic concept before it was just like, how do we provide loans to employees in house? And I think where I stepped in immediately was um, what I learned from my last startup is like marketing and branding. And it doesn't matter what you're selling, whether it's a financial product, whether it's a consumer product, beauty, uh, you really have to tell a story in a way where, you know, people need to understand the why they buy why you do it, not, you know, what it is. And so that was really important just to kind of take a few steps back and sharing his story about like why he started in the first place. It took a lot of digging. <laughs> it's like, well, why, why do you want to provide loans to employees? I know that I struggled financially myself and what I would like to see for, um, women, especially to open up about their finances, ask for help. And I would love to have, you know, a startup that provided that, inf- that kind of information, financial education, a place to go for help. Like 72% of mental health uh, stress is tied to financial, personal financial reasons. And I just wanted to build a product where we could have it as a financial health product benefit for employees. We talked about 401k for a very long time. I'm sure 30 years ago when 401k was introduced, it sounded completely crazy crazy for employers to think about their employees retirement, but it's just standard today. So I think we have to take a step further and think about how can they fix their unplanned expenses, their emergencies. A lot of people are not ready for retirement. They don't have disposable income for retirement. So I would have to say there, I wouldn't say there was a first conversation. I was kind of part of multiple conversations and realized 
that, you know, we, we have to come up with a better product, a better story. And, and then I think when it, when it all came together is when we applied um, for YC, but we didn't get into YC then. And it was, it was a learning experience for us. It's just not to give up. And then we continue to try and raise money for this idea, which we thought was really a necessity. So, so we're still going. <laughs> Congratulations. And, you know, hear that guys getting rejected the YC is not the end of the world. Cause I think Looking at Crunchbase right now, you guys end up still raising $4.2 million, which is absolutely amazing. You know, so <laughs> it's not the end of the world. If you don't get the YC, not, not everyone needs to go to YC to succeed anyways. Um, so the next question I want to ask is, I know you come, I know you mentioned earlier, earlier that, you know, your family's in manufacturing, right? Mm. So you know a lot about like building a business versus building a, a job that locks you in forever. And it doesn't feel yeah. like you're running a business. How what advice and how can you advise us on like growing your business? How do you scale correctly without it, it taking over your entire life and being like, Oh my God, like I'm in meetings all the time. I'm working in my business, not on my business because you're a CEO, right? You can't be working in your business all the time. And it's not yeah. going to work that way. So yeah, what absolutely. advice do you have? Because you have, you're so unique. You have a manufacturing background where your parents did that and you have a startup background. So how do you end up, not first, first part is how do you end up not confusing the two in order to be like, okay, how do I, how do I build my business? Not on my business. Type of thing. Yeah. That's actually a really great question, Brian. I think when I was in my early twenties, I had to plan everything where I was going to work, the industry I wanted to be in, the skills I needed to get promoted, where I wanted to live, the type of person I needed to marry, how many kids I wanted to have. And like, needless to say, like none of those plans worked out for me. And uh, I think a big part of building honeybees because life happened and, and you asked, you asked a really great question about how do you separate the two as like job versus a founder or an entrepreneur is as a founder, our goal is to create successful business by creating value. And there's so many ways that you can choose to live. But if you choose the entrepreneur path, um, you need to understand it's not a regular job. Um, more is expected of you, your brain, your heart. So figure out what you truly want to do and how you want to create that positive impact and do something that matters and push the society forward. But I think one really important part about being a leader is that it's a daily task and a daily practice. We're responsible for people who are responsible for the results. And the best way to like, for us at least, and that worked for me is to drive performance by creating a really safe environment where people can make mistakes. And it's at the end of the day, how to retain the best people, how to attract the best people. And that's something I had to learn along the way because there are days where I'm like, why can't I just work on <laughs> the product and like, you know, solving the problems in the workplace. And a lot of time I'm spending myself managing people, but that's part of the job is, you know, as CEO and founder is fundraising to keep this company going, to have enough cash flow to keep us um, alive and continue to like scale. That's really important. But a big part of scaling is making sure you bring the right people on board. And um, that talks, then we can talk about culture, building a positive culture. And also for me personally, it's been really important to have a um, diversified team. That's extremely important for me. You have to do the extra work to do that. Uh, but that's really been important for me and not just on our team, but in our investors, uh, it's important to have minorities, people of color, women. And I actually uh, just finished raising the last round and it was extremely hard to make sure 
I, I think I spoke to about five women <laughs> out of the hundred that I have met. And it is really difficult because you have to put in the extra work, find people outside of your network. And so, um, yeah, just make sure that you, you can balance, you know, that job that you say and that leadership, but leadership at the end of the day is, is a daily practice. Mm-hmm. Everything you said is absolutely true. You know, I think that's super important that you continue to, you know, build your culture, like build a culture yeah. where it's absolutely sustainable because that's the only way that you can delegate. You know, if you can't delegate right off the bat, no one's going to understand what the hell you're thinking. It's like a recipe for disaster. So you brought a really good point, culture, you know, delegation. The third thing that, that I think that we don't emphasize enough in these type of podcasts so as a CEO founder of a startup, you're always constantly fundraising for, mm-hmm. yeah. for your company. You know, like you always have to network around. You always have to have people in the pipeline. It just never ends. So I just want you guys to listen to this podcast right now. Unfortunately, if you're scaling quickly, you're always going to be fundraising. <laughs> so it doesn't yeah. stop. And the question that investors always say, are you fundraising? Well, the founders, I'm always, always fundraising, right? Regardless yeah. of whether you're planning to start the process exactly. in uh, three months from now or six months from now, yeah. you always have to build a pipeline. And I have an entire spreadsheet mm-hmm. of people I'm constantly meeting and yeah. why they would be a good fit or not. <laughs> Definitely. That, that process, I think most almost new founders underestimate how long fundraising takes. <laughs> you know, it, it honestly takes forever because... You don't want to accept any type of money that comes into your company because let's be honest here, finding money is not that hard, but finding money that fits your vision is extremely yeah. hard. Someone's like dating multiple people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a numbers game at the end of the day, right? Yeah, <laughs> there is uh, millions of people out there, men and women that you couldn't meet, but you know, you have to, it's a numbers game and you have to just keep going. Yeah. Unfortunately that applies. Dating applies to everything in life. This is <laughs> fundraising. Actually dating, it's hard. <laughs> uh, even that relationship building, like the first time you have a conversation, you want to provide some information, but yeah. not too much information, enough for them to stick around. <laughs> so yes, it's applicable to, you know, um, dating life as well. Can you actually paint that picture for us? For those founders who are fundraising, what is a, uh, what does a pipeline look like? I know a lot of people have this conception in their head where it's like, I meet people, I find investors and I sign the money, right? It's just not that simple. So yeah. I want to hear from your process. Like, what is your starting process? What do you look for? And how do you organize everything? Yeah. So it's organized in groups of people that, first of all, when you look for an investor, you not just looking for people with money, you know, have to make sure that they're investing in the right stage of the company. Um, that's, that's super important. The stage of the company and what their thesis is and like what they're willing to invest. I've, uh, that's extremely important because a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of female investors invest in like consumer products, right? That's not necessarily a good fit for us. So essentially you have to look at, you know, are they going to look and what have they invested in before? I think you ha- that's really important. You have to do that due diligence and making sure what are they passionate about so that, you know, it seems interesting for um, your company might seem interesting to them. If it's completely outside of the realm, like FinTech is not something they're familiar with. It's not something they ever dived into. Uh, chances are they're not going to be really interested in what you're doing. So that's the first thing. And you put it into categories of, yeah, there are going to be priorities of people that you want um, to to come in as lead investors. And that's important. Some people lead, some people don't. So you have to prioritize those that lead because you do need that uh, first investor that's going to lead their round to kick off that process. For our listeners, what is a lead investor? 
Uh, so lean investors essentially is um, the investor that's doing all the due diligence, right? Uh, a lot of due diligence goes into pricing around for um, a startup. And that's a, that's about six to eight weeks of work. And so that um, investor will lead around and it matters who leads around because other investors will be like, well, do I like this investor? Do I want to work with this person? So yes, it's a lot of relationship building and you have to do a lot of due diligence on your end as a, as a founder. Um, unfortunately, I'm not one of those that had multiple successful startups where I can just call them and they sign something on a napkin. I, I hear those stories all the time. I see it from my friends. Um, I did not go through that experience. <laughs> so I had an entire spreadsheet of people that I should talk to and who can introduce you to those people. Because, you know, as much as they say, oh, yeah, pitch to us in a cold email those cold emails never get looked at. So you absolutely need to find someone to introduce you. You look at their portfolio companies and who you can reach out to in your founder network. So it requires a lot of work. And yes, I didn't, um, I didn't get it on a napkin, <laughs> but, um, but I do believe that, you know, you can find the right investors with the, with the right process in place. Yeah. This is the reason why we want to have you in the podcast, you know, compared to like another founder who had it, Let's be honest, someone else had it much easier. They wouldn't give us the same answer. Yeah, just be like, I went out there and I raised money. What's so hard? What's so hard about this? You know, like we want to have someone that struggle, um, that yeah. builds character and it tells us, like, okay, this is actually a lot more relatable to a lot of us because a lot of us mm -hmm. don't have these type of connections, you know. Like a lot of us out there, let's be honest, very small percentage of us went to like Harvard, Stanford, whatnot. And yeah. how do you make our way around and still succeed at the same level? So we like that a lot. Thank you, Andy. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Yeah. And on that topic, you know, you, you, you talked about rejection as well. I think a lot of founders are used to rejection or first time founders. Right. And we do have to understand that we'll get rejected all the time as entrepreneurs, as founders. And I read that, you know, you went through like a hundred VCs and we're down to like $200 in your bank account when you finally got your first check from investors. Talk about that experience of like what was going through your mind at the time when you were down to your last $200 in your account. What are you, what are you thinking at the time? Like what was oh, emotionally, like, what are you feeling? We were crashing and our third co-founders, um, our, one of our co-founders, um, couches at this time, like both Benny and I were just, honestly, I wasn't, it was always, um, yes. Okay. We're down to the last, uh, few hundred dollars in our bank account, but we just never thought of the process as like giving up, like, let's give these, uh, remaining investors a shot and see what happens. Like we just never thought of, you know, if it fails, okay, what do we have to do? We're going to have to start, um, you know, looking for jobs <laughs> and it's not the end of the world. Right. I think a big part of it is, yeah, just part of the process, but we never thought about, um, giving up for a single second. It was always, let's just keep going and let's just keep pitching. And I'm sure after, um, I don't know, like 10 more investors, we would have kept going. And until we were, we're a little bit stubborn, so we, we don't give up that easy. And even the last round was a very long process. And, um, and so I just kept going because I think what I was thinking, which is different than, um, the first time around is we didn't have employees back then, right? It was just us. It wouldn't be the end of the world if the three of us um, had to part ways. But this time around, I had a lot more at stake. I have people that believe in what we're doing, our mission. I have customers. I have employers. I have employees. And so there was a lot more at stake. But I think you're always in the same mindset. You just got to keep going. You have to find the right investors. And 
always just keep networking. I think a big part that was really important because people that invested in this round was completely outside of my network six months ago. And, and so you just have to keep talking to people. You never know where that can lead you. Yeah. It's also part of the reason why we created Asian Hustle Network so we could support each other. Yeah, um, absolutely. And just part of Asian Hustle Network, you have a large network of entrepreneurs. And so that's, um, I have to give props to both of you for creating that community. I think uh, you've really created a community where we feel proud to be Asian entrepreneurs. I think it was very difficult for a very long time where um, we found each other because you know, our parents were like, oh, you're not doctors, you're not lawyers, <laughs> you're taking a risk, you're you know uh, living paycheck to paycheck. And I think like that's hard for a lot of parents. And so, so I really uh, thank you both for creating this community. No, we thank you because you, you are inspiration to us. You know, like I said before, like we've been keeping our eye on you and following you for a while, uh, look, tracking your progress and finally have the courage to reach out to you and talk to you. Um, so thank you for that. So the next question I have is, is regarding the answer you just gave us, right? Or the previous answer before that, where it's like, you have to be gritty. You have to continue talking to people, be okay with rejection. So this question is kind of like a, it's a true or false type of question. So it's yeah. like, do you believe it, Do you believe that it's more important for startup founders to be more gritty or more intelligent? And why? Oh, <laughs> I'm going to say gritty because I think like, um, I guess in, in that you mean like hustling, right? Hustling really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, intelligence is extremely important, but uh, I really believe that you need to have that hustle kind of mindset. You know, I know you guys call it Asian hustle network, but um, you kind of need that mindset to think of an idea and think that, oh, yes. I need $4 million um, to help fund this idea off of nothing. And that's kind of crazy, right? So it is, you, you gotta have that hustle mindset and just keep going because, you know, you're going to, if you fail, you gotta fail fast and pick yourself up and do it again. And I think it's, um, it's, I've, I've done it, I guess, a couple of times, I would say the last were like products less so, and then a company, but you got to have that hustle mindset. And I see it from a lot of founders. Yes, they have uh, high intelligence, but you have to keep, you know, hustling for that money. <laughs> you know, it's extremely difficult. So that would be my answer. I'm sure it would be uh, different answers from different mm-hmm. uh, founders, but you do need a combination of both. And, and I think that's important. I think I have, um, if I'm going to be fully transparent, I have more of the hustle mindset. <laughs> no, you're, you're definitely very, very smart. Um, I do agree. Like I think grit's super important because grit keeps you going. And to be honest, like you have to blindly believe into your passion because no one else is going to believe in, in that passion, yeah. you know? Um, next question I'm going to ask is kind of personal. I hope it's okay for me to ask, but can you talk a little bit more about your darker moments of being an entrepreneur and what the moment was like? especially moments where no one's around to sort of comfort you and you're looking at yourself in the mirror at night and you're asking yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I continuing doing this? And you, you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders, especially as you're continuously trying to make payroll, your revenue, you're not hitting your target goals, your revenue. Um, how do you continue pushing through those dark moments? Because this is the parts where, you know, a lot of us, like, like make entrepreneurship so glamorous, so like, Oh, nice car, nice house you know, cool network, yeah. cool parties, but no one talks about like the hustle dark moments where you're looking at yourself and so much doubt that you're just like, damn, like, can I continue doing this? Can you mm-hmm. share some of your experience with us? Um, yeah. So I think what 
you know, we, that's a very important topic to talk about, like mental health when it comes to entrepreneurship. It is um, it is extremely difficult. I think I struggled with it for many years. And I think what made me comfortable talking about it was a community of other entrepreneurs. They were actually all happened to be Asian entrepreneurs and kind of share that struggle because you see them at a much later stage of um, their startup and you think, oh, OK, everything's so great now. <laughs> and then they'll tell you, you know, it's it doesn't get easier. It gets actually it gets harder as you become bigger and bigger. And a lot of them would say, oh, I envy the position you're in. You're actually able to innovate. And, you know, you still have a small team where you can manage that innovation. Like they can't make changes in their later stage companies. And one common, um, one common practice that we all have as uh, entrepreneurs is a lot of us have a coach or a therapist that we talk to, we write in our journals. And that was really helpful for me. I think at the beginning, you're like, well, I've never had like a therapist or, you know, a coach, but actually helped me put things into perspective and have a conversation with someone that is not related to my business. And they see it from a different perspective. And that's helped me out a lot. I think a lot of the stress of investors has really gotten to me a lot of times because they want you to scale, scale, scale. And it's uh, sometimes they want you to pivot your business into less impactful and like more, make sure you monetize more from a vulnerable population. And I think like that was against everything I believed in. And I, I learned that the hard way. That's why when you're fundraising, you have to make sure you find the right investors that have the right intentions for your business. And so it's an ongoing process to kind of deal with, um, that stress. But one thing that's helped me tremendously is a community of people that I can go to, to bounce ideas off of and use them as a sounding board. And, and I think a lot of times you're like, oh, I, I feel embarrassed to ask for, you know, I'll do pitch practices with uh, founders. There are a lot, you know, there are veterans, I would say, and I'm embarrassed sometimes like, oh, you know, to see how um, I'm just an early stage startup. But, you know, a lot of people are willing to help you if you just ask for help. And so that's helped me a lot. In, in all of this is the community that um, I'm surrounded by. And a lot of them happen to be Asian founders. Mm, I love that. Yeah, that, I mean, that resonates with us so strongly because that's one of the reasons why we created Asian Hustle Network to you mm-hmm. know, create a community of Asian entrepreneurs and people who just resonate with you or who go through the same experience with you. A community is really what you know brings you forward. So my next question is, um, I know you talk to a lot of women. I know with your one of your missions for Honeybee is to redefine diversity, equity and inclusion at other companies um, and just talking to so many women. You know, I know you mentioned that, you know, one of the main reasons why a lot of people get or don't get divorces is because of finance reasons, right? A lot of people are afraid of what will happen to them after or one person depends on the other person or vice versa, right? Um and speaking to that, I, I, I think what a lot of women want to find out is like if they are in that situation, because one of the reasons why you created this company is because from your personal experience as well. How did you kind of go through that transition process and immerse yourself into, you know, financial knowledge, you know, educate yourself on, you know, what you needed to know in terms of financial knowledge and what would be your advice to other women who are going through like similar struggles like that? Um, well, I think the one thing I will say is, you know, when I um, got divorced and I I was really open about it for a while when I was doing Honeybee, I didn't want to talk about it because you you don't want to talk about, oh, yeah, you struggled financially um, yourself. But I realized that was a pivotal moment when I started sharing about why 
I'm building Honeybee, why it's important for women to have more control of money, because I found myself in a situation where I felt helpless and I didn't have anywhere to go for help. And once I opened up about that, the floodgates of women that reached out to me, whether it was personal, complete strangers um, asking for help because they just wanted to relate to someone because we all, you know, at the end of the day, we all seem like, oh, we're well put together, but we're going through a lot financially. I've heard all kinds of stories of uh, women that are hesitating to, yeah, take, um, have a divorce because they're afraid of what's going to happen to them after. It's a very difficult process and extremely emotionally and financially draining process for, for anyone to go through. And so that's important to keep in mind, but always be prepared. Like you can prepare yourself for what's to come. And things I wish I would have done is, you know, open my bank account, understand a little bit more about like how that credit score is built. Um, you know, when it's a joint account. And so all that information, um, if I had it early, I, it would have been a completely different process for me. And so what I, you know, it wasn't about uh, learning about everything in FinTech because there's so much to learn, but it was about making sure that people um, that are leaders and C-level start sharing their own setbacks and difficulties. And that's a big part of how we bring employers on as champions is that the C-level should explain a little bit more about, you know, how um, they've had to overcome financial setback. It will inspire other people to, you know, create that change and to start learning about financial education, passing it on to your kids. And that's why today we have what we call the Honey Academy, where parents and their kids can learn about financial literacy together. And, and I think um, that's the most important part is like, let's have the authentic desire to continue to share stories and our setbacks so that we can inspire other people to overcome like personal finances is actually pretty basic, but it's, it's a scary, it's a scary topic to learn because you have to look at your bank account, how to balance debt, um, you know, all, all of all of the above. And a lot of um, people that work with us, you know, they have a lot of debt. They are single mothers. They are, you know, just constantly struggling to get by. So I think let's just give them, you know, inspiration to continue to uh, move forward. And I think it's one step at a time. It is really important. You can't go from bankruptcy to I want to buy a house. Like, let's just mm -hmm. think about the step-by-step -step process. Even for me, uh, I'm thinking about, should I renew my next like 15 month lease? Because it's something to think about, right? And, and I think that's something, it's an ongoing process for me as a founder, because the startup is my baby. And I, you know, we work at 12 months at a time <laughs> runway and that's, that's just how it works, right? So I didn't go in learning everything about FinTech. I definitely do not uh, know everything, but it's mm -hmm. uh, just to continue to inspire people to share stories is the most important thing. Awesome. That's so humbling to hear, you know, like you're always, this is a constant journey and you're also, also, also constantly improving yourself. So um, I'm kind of curious too, you know, the way that you, you frame the narrative for Honeybee, it's like, you know, as we know, like anything with financial education is also oftentimes linked to like scams, MLM schemes. And mm -hmm. how do you develop that narrative where you position your company as a company of trust, you know, especially breaking to fintech, like how do you position that to be like, look guys, this is what we're about. We're legit. You know, mm -hmm. we're talking about it's not an MLM. <laughs> you know, like, I'm pretty yeah. sure like a lot of investors have asked that question. Like, how's this like is this MLM or, or how's this adding value to people's lives? Like, how do you position your company to have a stronger narrative on your side? 
Yeah, I think um, day one was extremely difficult because we were nobodies and we hadn't done any press. I haven't told any stories. And so immediately um, when we're talking to companies, they're like, this sounds too good to be true. So it must be a scam. So there's a lot of things that we started putting um, in place, uh, becoming a certified benefit corporation. What that means is it helps us balance purpose and profit. And that immediately you know, gives you the stamp of approval. You have to go through quite a long audit process to make sure that, you know, um, to make sure that, you know, what your stakeholders, who your stakeholders are and uh, what is your purpose, your mission. And that's really important. So that's the first step we did. And the second step is what I, um, spoke about earlier is like, I openly shared my story. And then that, you know, allowed us to bring a lot of visibility for employers. You know, when you have an article out there and you're like, okay, she just opened up about, you know, the emotional (laughs) and financial rock bottom that she hit, like would love, it got a little bit more interest in people finding out who we are. And, and after that is making sure those customers share stories so that, you know, that's essentially what we do continuously. And part of my job is constantly sharing stories with other people about how it's positively impacted their lives. Um, so what, what I do a lot is I listen to our customer service calls and I, every once in a while, I would want to reach out to one of those customers and hear a little bit more about, you know, her journey and how Honeybee has helped her. So it helps me understand, you know, we are constantly yeah, trying to build a brand, a product, fundraising, but we should never forget the people that we've impacted directly. So recently I spoke to a mom and uh, she's a single mother. She has four kids. Uh, One of them was in the Marines and he was unable, he didn't have any money to fly back home from South Carolina to the Bay area to see uh, his mom. And it's been well over a year and a half. And what Honeybee did is helped him pay for that air ticket, right? So that he could see his family. A lot of that is, uh, personal travel is not covered, of course. And that was extremely important for her because it's been so long and you can imagine how difficult it is to have, you know, someone, um, that's in the Marine that's away for so long. So those are the stories I constantly just try to pick up so that I understand like how to build our product even better for them, uh, making sure they have a really great user experience and constantly getting feedback is, is extremely important because we don't just want to hear the, the, the perfect, like, Oh, that was a really great process, but we want to hear about like, what's not going right. So then we can fix it. So, so I think that's really important part of the process. Yeah. I mean, definitely, definitely thanks for sharing that. And yeah, just a clarification earlier. I didn't mean MLM are all scams. (laughs) 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 I I know there's, yeah, I didn't want to, cause confusion over there <laughs> but, you have everyone like uh you know tweeting you very soon yeah, yeah i didn't want that at all <laughs> sorry apologize for the confusion guys uh for our listeners um i mean emmy like you're doing a lot right you know you're raising money you're running company how do you take care of yourself and how do you avoid burnout like there's are there activities that you do do you set a time time every day to meditate? Do you set a time time to, to exercise, play sports? Like how do you take care of your, yourself and your mental health? 
Um, exercising is really important. I used to wake up really early and just like get the workout out of the way. But since uh, the pandemic, I have to say, I kind of, you know, sleep in a little bit later <laughs> and then I work out later in the day. Um, before we, we were constantly felt like a hamster wheel that you're on. You have to wake up early. You have to go to the office. You have to get from, um, you know, the office to the workout and then get ready and then go back to the office <laughs> and you're constantly running. But, um, this remote working has allowed us to slow down and I feel be more a lot more productive. I think that's my personal opinion. I've been a lot more productive than I ever used to be. And so uh, working out super important. I have, you know, I joined, uh, I have a spin bike. So I work out on that. And also walking around outdoors is something I've never appreciated before until the pandemic happens. Like, oh, taking a walk in the neighborhood. And I'm lucky enough where I live close to the beach. I've always wanted to walk on the beach like every day. And so that's, um, I have the luxury to do that. So that's extremely important for me. But in addition to that is um, what you mentioned, meditation, right? So that's an ongoing process, but I, I've been working a lot at it over the last couple of years. And I do think it's important to just take a step back, unwind and just do nothing and just think about, you know, absolutely nothing and just be able to clear out and, and have like, if you're having a bad day, you put everything on the court one day, you just have to take a step back and do it again the next day. I think it's, it's hard to avoid burnout, but you know, taking time off is really important. I love that. I was literally just having that same thought like a couple of days ago, like right before the pandemic, waking up at like 4am, like we have to stick with the schedule. I'm just like, how are we even like surviving? We're like just in zombie mode. But I think the pandemic has really like forced us to just take a step back and reflect, okay, what is going to be in our like self-care, self-love regime and, you know, make sure that we're making time for ourselves. So I love, you know, everything that you're doing for yourself. Yeah. And I think we tried new things. I think during the pandemic, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll paint. And it turns out I'm a really terrible painter. <laughs> so that didn't last very long. But, you know, I, I did one painting and I'm like, I don't think I'm going to show this to anybody ever. Um, <laughs> there was like puzzles for a while. But then what I realized, like, what do I do with the puzzles after is um, my struggle. And so I can't keep framing up all of my puzzles. But essentially, I try to think of other things that I could, you know, just take my mind off of things. Yeah, love it. So Annie, what is your goal for the next year um, and for Honeybee as well? Like, what do you have in plans and what are your like big audacious goals? Um, big goals for us is, of course, it's really important, you know, where we, we found product market fit during some of the most challenging time the world's ever seen, like during the pandemic, we realized employers were willing to spend money on financial health, um, regardless of whether they were cutting uh, hours, budget, reducing uh, their workforce, they were willing to pay for it. I think for us, it's really important to have um, even larger employers to bring this on their workforce. And for us is to bring on larger enterprise companies and start making it a must have rather than a nice to have. And I think that's really important for us. And of course, like growing our team, um, finding the right people to join our team is always extremely difficult. It is, um, it's an ongoing, you know, challenge that uh, CEOs have to go through is to find the right people because the first, I don't know, 20 people part of your company, it's important that they have an entrepreneur mindset also, and they're willing to adapt and to the change very quickly. So you have to find people that are um, willing to get on this crazy startup journey. So I think that's, that's going to be our next goals for the next year. 
Wow. Well, we're, we're very excited for, you know, just hearing more about yourself and Honeybee in the next year as well. And we have one final question for you, Annie, and that is if you could give one advice to an aspiring entrepreneur, what would that advice be? Um, the one advice I would have to say is, yeah, building resilience and how to handle rejection gracefully. That is, I guess that's like two advice, but it, you know, it's related to each other. Uh, how to handle rejection gracefully is really important not to take it all personal and always to put it in perspective. Um, for an, one, an example is, you know, you're pitching to an investor that you really want, but it's really important to think about, you know, the position they're in, right? They're getting deals all the time and they have to pick a handful of deals um, that, that year. And so uh, I put that into perspective. And so just not to take things too personally. Amazing. Thank you for that advice. And Annie, where can our listeners find out more about you and Honeybee Online? Uh, well, our website is meethoneybee.com, M-E-E-T, honeybee.com. Or you can uh, follow me on Twitter. I don't tweet a lot, but like at Annie Lim is uh, my handle. Amazing. We will be sure to leave all of those in the show notes for this podcast episode. But Annie, it was so amazing having you on our podcast today. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so both for having me, Maggie and Brian. Of course. Thank you so much. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.